I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Honey & Co. I'm Itamar Srulovic. And I'm Sarit Becker. In our podcast, we talk to cooks, makers, producers, anyone in the world of food that we find of interest. And we are hugely lucky to be invited to do this series at the Victorian Albert Museum. It's called Food Bigger Than the Plate. It features all sorts of different ideas and perspectives on how we eat today, how we consume food, going all the way from composting to growing to trading to eating and now we are joined by three artists who are featured in the exhibition i want you to give a big hand to karen guthrie here jaslyn core and michael rakovitz welcome guys thank you very much Hi guys, welcome. Each of you has an exhibit in the, well, some, some of you more than one exhibit actually in this exhibition and they're all kind of facing this place of food, food in our culture and how we relate to, to what we're eating. There's an action behind it all and we want to speak to each one of you a bit individually about your things. So we start with you, Karen, please. You are from the House of Ferment. First of all, what is it and the inspiration behind it? Well, the House of Ferment is a mobile pop-up larder uh, in its situation at the V&A here, it's more of a cabinet of curiosities than it is a live project. But in the past, it's appeared in museums and food spaces like Borough Market. It's been outdoors in places like Krakow and Poland. It's been in lots of contexts where it's actually been a kind of backdrop for live food events and talks and demonstrations, really around the different global cultures and practices of fermentation. But what you see in the V&A really is a cabinet of curiosities. It's my own personal collection of kitchen ephemera. Some of stuff I've been given over the time that I've been a kind of committed but home cook. Um, stuff that I've inherited from family members that's very dear to me. All of it has a relationship to my past, but also to the practice of fermented foods and the, the ones that I've learned as I've traveled in the world. And the exhibit itself is very endearing. I mean, you walk in and you would see kind of an old Kenwood or an old icebox or jars of ferments. And you immediately understand, you know, kind of the connection to the past and memories and food. It's just very relatable. But how did it start? How did it all begin? 
Well, it started actually because um, one of my hats is that I am a kind of residential warden at a residency in the Lake District called Grisdale Arts. So I host a lot of artists there, I cook for them, I gather their ferments, they give me things and we, you know, we grow a lot of food there and we preserve a huge amount of food up there. Grisdale Arts and myself got commissioned to make a piece of work about food, about this role that we have within the arts of hosting and being hospitable and growing our own food. There's not many arts organisations that do that. So uh, the Science Gallery actually, about five years ago, commissioned the House of Ferment as something that they wanted to put in Bar Market that would be something different from the usual offer and that would be able to host talks and education around food, but have this different presence. So in a way, that's where we got this idea of gathering together the material that we had up the mountain at our farm in the Lake District and bringing it into this kind of format. The structure of the cupboard, as I call it, the cupboard is a bit of a, it's like not a cupboard, not, is it? Yeah, no. But it's, it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, and one side of it looks like your average domestic shelving kind of unit with lots of things like you mentioned, the Kenwood Chef, which I just adore Kenwood Chef mixers. So for me, there, should, there, there can't be too many of them in museums. So I've got that. <laughs> but then you turn the corner. definitely aren't enough. Yeah. Yeah. You turn the corner and then there's this copper, I call it kind of cloak. The roof of the installation is made of copper. And that's because the mountains and the landscape around where I live in the Lake District was a, a copper mining landscape. Yeah. So when we were trying to work out how this thing should be, how would it look? How could we make it different from just a cupboard? We thought, let's make this thing that refers also to the landscape that we make this food in and that we collect these materials in. And we worked with a Swedish design collective called Front, and we worked with a really fantastic Manchester-based maker. And we came up with this rather extraordinary roof. And I quite often call it the kind of Elvis cloak. You know, it's like Elvis's yeah. cape. So on one side, you see like the shelving and the ordinary objects of food preparation, the ferments. And then you turn the corner and you just see this very glamorous thing. I mean, now it's very fashionable to ferment things, isn't it? It's part of kind of the new generation. All the cookbooks that are coming out now are fermenting. But actually, it's a tradition that's been going on since cooking has started for a way of people to preserve things. And you've fermented and preserved foods with some obscure people. Can you tell us a bit about a few experiences like and that? And also, what exactly does it mean when we say ferment, what, what do we mean? What is it actually, what's the physical aspect of it? Well, I suppose for me, fermentation is, is time encapsulated. In the practices that I have as an artist and a filmmaker, I kind of see myself as somebody who's always playing with time. And fermentation is about that. You're, you're harnessing something that's a natural process, the aging of food, the decomposition of food, in fact. Um, is what fermentation is, and, it, and it's a delicious process, but it's also a deathly process. This is what's so kind of compelling about it as a subject, and I think why so many people, you know, are getting so excited about it now is because it, it does touch on some really fundamental human kind of conditions, really, and, you know, one of them is, is death and the end of life and the processes of change. So um, I'm not that interested in the science of fermentation, and it was funny that the piece of work was first commissioned by the Science Gallery, because they didn't really tell me much more about the science than I already know. And I have to be honest and say that the magic of it is for me still the big excitement, the mystery of it. And I demonstrate it to people often and they cannot believe how easy it is. You know, in four days, you've got a fizzy drink out of three components and some time. You don't need anything advanced. You don't need any chemicals. But I mean, I've had a lot of fermentation sort of adventures, but the main one that was exciting to me was being stuck in Japan 
in northwest Japan in a mountainous region, quite like where I live in the Lake District, so very similar growing conditions, short seasons, vegetables that I really recognized, you know, gluts that I recognized, and being without a translator and then cooking alongside local women and learning a huge amount about long-term and short-term vegetable preservation in Japanese cuisine. And it's just not stuff you taste in Japanese restaurants. We tend to see very formulaic, limited number of preserved foods in Japanese food in restaurants in this country anyway. And the, the range is off the scale. And yeah. of course, the health benefits of it are well documented now, but it's just about deliciousness and using what's available. And cooking alongside local women is always just like a massive privilege. I'm sure you've done it as well a lot. And you just learn so much from doing that. And I've got things like a nuka bed, which is a rice bran, pickled rice bran bed, which is the strangest kind of fermentation process. But I've got one now that's 10, 10 or 12 years old, which is so still going re strong. you rebury vegetables yeah, in Yeah, it's them. like a sourdough starter, but it's a way of pickling vegetables and you wash off the vegetable and eat it. Um, so that's perhaps the strangest fermentation that I do regularly. What I find um, very interesting about this whole process, I love what you said about this being capturing time, but also in, in a very real sense, culture. You know, not only the bacterial cultures, but that domestic culture of having that and that knowledge that comes with it, which is what makes us who we are, that passing knowledge. You feel that your exhibition is about passing that or preserving that or celebrating that? I think it is about passing it on and not because it's hip or I'm an expert. If anything, I'm a sort of person who says, actually, please do it yourself. Please look at your kitchen differently. Look at, those, look at that old knife or that old Kenwood chef that you inherited. Look at it differently and see that as part of your culture and take this this lesson to be do this stuff at home and experiment with food and also be instinctive and confident in the judgments you make around food you have to have the confidence to taste something that's going a bit fizzy in the fridge and go do you know what i shouldn't really eat this because it's gone off but <laughs> it's really good it's really good and just eat it and and survive and eat it and it's delicious you know why do more of us not want to do that you know i just think that's something i want to pass on and i want to want people to enjoy being in a kitchen surrounded by kind of greasy old pans and things that you maybe didn't buy yourself but somebody gave you but you don't want to give it up and those things are all part of the joy of being you know a good cook and the hospitality of that of course and of sharing that with other people. Jocelyn you were also quite inspired by home cooking tell us a bit about the Tala Cup and what this is. This is part of your exhibition. Yeah, there's lots of crossovers, actually. Um, so the Tala curry measure was a... It's essentially an artwork, but a product that was went into production in 2012 with the company Tala, who go by the bigger name Georgie's Housewares. So they're a company that make homewares and a lot of cooking utensils and ephemera. I came across the measure in a car boot sale. Just describe what yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a hand-sized conical measure um, made out of tin. Inside it's got a set of what feels like ruler guides and the original measure which has been manufactured in Britain since the 1920s um, and the, the company's very proud of that, that they're still manufacturing and producing in Britain. The original measure's designed to essentially measure stuff through volume not through weighing scales so it's got stuff like 
flour, sugar, tapioca, and it goes round the inside of the measure. So you fill it up to a line and that'll be 150 grams. You fill it up to the next line, that'll be 250 grams. And that'll be like your scone recipe. Yeah, 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 it's something I never ever cooked growing up, <laughs> <laughs> which I guess is where the, the hack comes in. Um, so I wanted to redesign this measure. I think at the time I was making a lot of objects that felt like they were cutting and pasting, literally taking stuff apart and putting, reconfiguring things to describe a kind of um, meeting point between or an in-between space reflecting on identity and, and environment and home space. So back to the measure, I wanted to hack into the internal. So, you know, cook or have the ingredients in there that I cook at home or that I grew up absorbing through just watching and doing and smelling and tasting on repeat. Like that's your that's your home life. That's so what, what sort of preparation are in your measure? So there's 10 dishes that are really basic Indian dishes that we would cook every day, like a dal, an aloo gobi, a roti recipe, rice. And the principle of the measure shifts. So from measuring the original measures, independent ingredients and the the tala curry measure, each column um, or each of the rulers that I was describing is a dish. So, for example, dal has all of the increments of ingredients that you need to make dal, or aloo gobi has all of the increments of ingredients that you need to make aloo gobi. So it came about from thinking about that way of measuring that you, you know, I was never taught how to cook a curry. I was never, I didn't even call it curry. Why did I just call it curry? It's not called curry. Um, I was never taught, like, this is how you make dal. You put in one teaspoon of this and one tablespoon of that. It was always like, it was like a... It was, yeah, yeah. yeah, you could feel it, see it, you could, yeah. it was a notion of something, it wasn't mills and grams, and that's not how my mum cooks, it's not how my gran cooks, it's not how my dad cooked, it was like, I know that that cup is enough rice to cook for four people, it's like something, it's another way of knowing something, and so kind I of a, a domestic culture, or yeah. a private culture. Yeah, yeah. And sort of, I, and I can see the, the appeal of taking this very, very personal thing, a very personal idea, and making it into an object that then you can give to us and it can become, you know, to anyone, it could become part of our culture. I think Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's something so uh, obvious and and brilliant. Mm -hmm. And obviously there was a lot of excitement about it and it became a mass-produced item. Yeah, sold in a lot of places, which also meant it got produced maybe in a way that... Could you stay involved in it once it becomes this thing? Because it would obviously leave the realms of just you making a piece of art mm. and what changed about the product? Yeah, really deliberate way of making an artwork. Like a, it was a hands-off approach to thinking about how something's manufactured and what distribution chain it exists in once it's made and where it sells. It was really deliberate to not just remake a kind of hashed version of this and put it on a plinth in an exhibition, but it had to go through Tala. It had to be manufactured by them and go through their distribution systems because I guess I was interested in where it might end up and one of those places being my dad's hardware shop right like so he he buys from the cash and carry in Glasgow and Trongate and I know that that cash and carry stocks Tala products so there was it was this kind of it must it must go through this cycle as an artist who kind of borrows and is trying to grapple with all of this stuff that comes from home and cultural identity or these 
stories of migration that I was just chatting to Michael about earlier. You know, where does that all end up? Does it end up in a gallery that none of those people or none of that stuff enters that space? So it was a really deliberate choice for it to, to be seven quid and to be able to be bought in the local hardware shop, cook shop, unfortunately now Amazon, but yeah, <laughs> you lose control somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. See, there, there is an element of losing control sometimes. But, but it, it's almost like a, kind of another layer of meaning of how kind of something that was domestic and personal mm. becomes, you know, mass-produced, widely available and kind of distorts in a way. I think, you know, this kind of reminds me actually uh, stuff that Michael does as well, which we'll get to in a minute. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But I wanted to talk about another one of your exhibit, which is the carpets, which I thought were brilliant. Because <laughs> that's al it's almost like the talakap in the sense that it's an object that gives you a guidance on, on how to eat. Mm -hmm. You know, tell us yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. about them. So the carpets are called the five Ks. Um, there's five large-scale carpets, kind of made of domestic, printed, quite garish prints, printed carpet. And they were commissioned through um, Eastside Projects in Birmingham, an, art, an arts organisation. And so I guess my input was rethinking how we eat together. Um, yeah. This is my childhood, really, like going to a gurdwara, going to a Sikh temple and sitting on a strip of what could only be described as like fake Axminster carpet. And I'm really interested in those overlaps of like, it's this br fake British carpet. Fake British trying to fake Indian. Yeah, yeah. actually, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like weird colonial print. Can, um, can, you, can you stop a second and tell yeah. us what the five Ks are? Because you, yes. you're saying it as if everybody knows, but I, for example, didn't have any idea until we started reading about yeah. it. So t tell us what the five Ks are. Yeah, I think it's fine to not know as well, but they're, they're essentially five... Uh, parts of the Sikh identity, they're objects, but um, one of the objects is hair, for example, and they all begin with the letter K in Punjabi, 
So the, the carpets take the form of these five objects and in, in shape, loosely. Do you want and me to go give, through they what give you they little, are? Well, you don't have to tell us all, but they give you little instructions, the carpets, don't they? There's like, yeah. sit with a stranger. or Tell us a few more of those, the, the little explanations the of five the carpets. Tenants. Yeah, I guess it was, like, one of the rules was to take your shoes off or to um, not speak about highbrow topics, such as, you know, it was kind of, it's a leveller, right? Like, the principle of, if I take you back into the space of the Gordwara, the, the, the principle of eating on the floor um, together and sharing a meal together comes from really old practices from the beginning of Sikhism and it and, and the place that the, that comes from is then to level caste division and for everyone to um, eat the exact same meal um, so there's real kind of socialist principles around it so I guess the rules <laughs> were to to playfully get people thinking about that as we would use these carpets to share a meal together yeah but also you know, when you come to use them, it's quite intuitive, you know. Mm. You, you see the kind of cut-up carpet, you know where you want to put your bum, you know where you want to put your plate. Mm-hmm. It kind of guides you toward that. The mm. object makes the action, yeah. in yeah, a way. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, th- I think that's really special. I think it works. Yeah, I was reading about um, intangible cultural heritage that UNESCO have written this kind of documented, this list of... You know, not the objects. How do you hold on to that cultural stuff that's not physical? It is an action. It is um, a ritual or a, a practice that's done daily in certain communities. And yeah, I think it speaks to that um, yeah. that gathering that happens that you can't put on a wall or hang in a hang in a gallery. We're going to go on to Michael, and you, you stay in the world of gathering and of people, and we've spoken to you quite at length before, and you guys can listen to the episode. With should listen, actually. Should, you have to listen. Fascinating. And actually, we're really glad that we have the opportunity to talk to you again, because there's so much that we didn't cover last time. But I just want to go back to the idea of the kind of the domestic tableware becoming like an art object or an object of ceremony. And this is the project that is called... Sorry, Spoils, which is an incredible, incredible project. Tell us a little bit about the Spoils project. So Spoils began as a project that was supposed to be small and polite and ended up being big Nothing and but. impolite. <laughs> yeah. um, big and rude. So it, it, was, it was a work where I was invited by um, an arts organization in New York called Creative Time. I had worked with them in 2006 to reopen my grandfather's import-export company that he had in Baghdad to import Iraqi dates to the U.S. for the first time in 40 years. And all of this was triggered by me finding a can of date syrup in a grocery store that said product of Lebanon, knowing that my mother would love it. And the owner who knew my grandparents when they came over from Baghdad saying it's actually not from Lebanon it's from Baghdad. And he told me that the date syrup is processed in these large plastic vats and then driven over the border to Syria and that gets labeled product of Lebanon. And it's one of those things that you see here in London, the Basra date syrup actually says product of Netherlands, yeah. you know, which is kind of crazy. Country not well known for its palms. No, the, the, yeah. Date, yeah, the date palms of Amsterdam, I've, I've missed, you know, on each trip. <laughs> But it's, uh, it was something that um, when they asked me to kind of do a reprise, uh, any project with them, it didn't have to be about dates, um, 
it was more or less to take uh, some artists that they had worked with, creative time had worked with in the past, and ask them to intervene in uh, the space of a restaurant called Park Avenue, which is in the Upper East Side in New York City. And uh, it was in 2011, the U.S. was still occupying Iraq. And um, I came back to this idea around date syrup, and it had everything to do with provenance of like where something is from, and restaurants engage with provenance. They tell you where your arugula is from, they tell you where your meat is harvested from, and it's a way of making the diner feel good. And I wanted to make the diner feel bad. And so I spoke with the chef, uh, Kevin Lasco, and I said, I don't care what it is that you do, I just want you to do something on your menu and to use this can of date syrup that says it's from like the Netherlands, and to say Iraqi date syrup, that you've used Iraqi date syrup, and to mobilize that into a space of visibility. So it liberates this object, this product that's suffering from xenophobia, of not being able to say where it's from, and puts it into the mouth of the diner. And so this was all done on a conference call where I'm like mentioning this, and he says, fantastic, what do Iraqis make with date syrup? And I say, well, there's this really simple dish called dibiswarashi, where you take date syrup and you mix it with tahini, and it's kind of like an Iraqi Nutella. It's amazing. Uh, and he says, fantastic. I'm going to take date syrup and tahini, and I'm going to put venison on top of it. So it's the Iraqi date harvest meets the American deer hunt. And I'm like, fantastic. And then it's going to be served on plates that were looted from Saddam Hussein's palaces that I found on eBay. <laughs> And there was dead silence on the telephone. And, uh, and that's the point at which like, the PR person of the restaurant said, I think we're going to get a lot of attention for this project. And the reason why I'd been looking on eBay uh, for anything from Iraq goes back to the looting of the museum, the National Museum of Iraq, uh, in 2003 after the US invaded. You would find those objects, those Mesopotamian artifacts, in places like Sotheby's or Christie's, but some of those things ended up on eBay. So I have an alert word on eBay uh, for Iraq or Iraqi. So I get thousands of emails every day from eBay. And at one point, I started to wonder, what is it that's not being policed on eBay? What is the stuff that's hemorrhaging from Iraq that seemingly is allowed to leave that country? And there were U.S. soldiers that were based in Baghdad who were selling these things that ordinary Iraqis had looted Saddam's palaces and were using his flatware as their daily flatware or his chandeliers as their lighting. And it was a dis this dispersal of the, um, the symbols of power into the populace. But then it was also the kind of thing that had been more vulgarly brought back by the U.S. soldier or was being something that was, um, that was then hemorrhaged on the market. Another part of your exhibition actually talks about the U.S. soldier or the veteran of the U.S. soldier. In, in Enemy Kitchen, you're working with, with refugees and with veterans of the war. Can you tell everyone a bit about that part of the exhibition? Yeah, well, this is Enemy Kitchen, and it's a project that goes back to my mother and my grandmother who transmitted um, Iraq to me when we were growing up. I was born in New York and grew up in the house that my grandparents came to when they left. And so the DNA of Iraq really got to us in the kitchen. It was basically the place where 
you know, the smells and the gathering and all the social qualities of what it means to be from a place was kept alive, um, very thankfully. And, um, and so my mother and my grandmother are like the two biggest influences on my practice when it comes to that idea of survival. And so there were points in the beginning of the Iraq War, 1991, for instance, the Gulf War, uh, when my mother saw the city being bombed and she realized that my brothers and I were seeing Iraq for the first time in real time through that. And she drew our attention away from the TV and said, there's no Iraqi restaurants in New York. Can you believe that? And it was a way of her pointing out that there were wasn't a visibility of Iraq and the U.S. beyond oil and war. And so when the Iraq war was pretty much a certainty in 2002, 2003, my mother and I started to teach her recipes to public audiences as a kind of like resistance uh, and a place where people could slow down their brains and your hands could do something and liberate your mind and your mouth to speak about what was happening. And then that evolved in in Chicago, uh, where there are Iraqi restaurants, but they don't say they're Iraqi. They say they're like Mediterranean. And, uh, and I wanted to work with Iraqi restaurants there and to do something a little bit different. And so I work with a team of Iraqi refugee chefs as the chief chefs that are part of this food truck that circulates around the town that almost nobody was willing to insure. And then the sous chefs and servers are veterans that um, served in the U.S. Army in Iraq and have come back suffering the traumas not only of the war, but also the moral injury, you know, of what it is that they did and confronting what they've done. So, you know, it inverts the power dynamic that was in Iraq, you know, where now finally the Americans are taking orders from the Iraqis. But it also circulates on this food truck two kinds of people that most Americans haven't met. Most Americans have not met an Iraqi, and most have not met a veteran. And so, you know, when you think about the hands that make the food or the provenance that makes the food, you know, for instance, if you think about making a kebab, uh, you take the ground meat and you form your fist around it. And so there's this interesting ritual on the truck when we make the food with the kebab. It's like a veteran fist you know, that was holding a weapon that now the void of that, of that fist is imprinted onto the meat and then the next one's a refugee and the next one's a veteran. And so I'm always coming back to this idea of sculpture, you know, food as a form of sculpting and, um, and what handwork means. And when you take the impression or the touch of somebody's hands onto these ingredients, there's a really strange communion that comes along with that. I mean, obviously, we're all here in an exhibition about food, but all of you have chosen food or the, the ceremonies around food as, as the kind of medium for your art. How do you think there's a relation? Why has food become something that can also refer to art and, and vice versa? I feel like there's a really highbrow space for food and where food and art sits, sits together. And I hate that. <laughs> I, I feel like it comes from... For me, anyway, it's that home space. It's not, it's not the commercial gallery riffing off something that's dearly important to you, or that is your cultural identity, or your, or that knowledge that's been trickled down and is at risk of being lost, or some, you know, it's all of that important stuff. And we do see kind of galleries as museums as mm -hmm. kind of bastions of high-end culture, maybe, mm -hmm. whereas food is very much 
the common denominator. And, and I think in all your work, it's very in the fermentation shack. It's very instinctive. It's very clear what's happening there. You know, it's an actual pickle. It's an actual kitchen. It's or in your work, it's an actual manual how to cook your your family recipes. It's all very transparent, I feel. Was that kind of a conscious effort to maybe liberalize art or democratize this conversation? I mean, I think what you were saying there is that, you know, we've all three of us are talking about a domestic, in many ways, maternal creativity. And something that is the origin of a lot of people's creativity, in fact, you know, is that sort of... I mean, I didn't come from an art-filled background. For me, it was about watching a woman with what she had available being creative in the space that was hers, a kitchen. So, you know, that was an intimate and very precious creative space and act that I was part of because I was a child. That's how we want to connect with an audience. We want them to feel like they're at our in our personal, intimate space, you know, receiving our, in a way, intimate, most intimate kind of connection. So, in a way, I think what that's, that's why we're drawn to that, that medium, is because it's, it's our most intimate space. And I think all artists want to give audiences that sense of intimacy. And the medium is kind of natural. It just feels like a natural thing. I don't think, for me anyway, I don't feel like I'm simplifying something for it to be accessible. What else strikes me as paralleling quite a lot is the fact that all your exhibits actually have an idea of change because your carpets are on the floor, so people are walking on them and they will wear. And your fermentation, everything still is growing or dying, as you say, in, in a way, while it's in the exhibition. And Michael, your work, not specifically the one in this exhibition, but the Lamassu that is, guys, by the way, the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square is... Uh, is the most beautiful thing, but that also ages and it changes. So this aspect that art changes with us or grows with us is, you know, did, was that ever something that was planned or is it kind of just a byproduct of it all? Well, for my piece, it was one of the most challenging things of being invited into this show was that I couldn't have, you know, lots of baking, lots of pickling, really. I could have some, some jars, but I couldn't be working in the space or inviting other people to work in it. So that does feel a bit of a sadness for me. And, but we are in this museum full of, it's just, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches, isn't it? So it's, it's kind of a very resonant space for anyone who's interested in material culture to be exhibiting in. So I, I don't feel like the museum is killing the work that we have in it. I feel like it's, it's in conversation with all these interesting exhibits, which are, in a way, you know, there's a lot of domestic material in the V&A. There is high culture, but there's also domestic culture. So it feels like we're in a sort of discussion with those rooms and those objects. I mean, this exhibition, in a way, is bringing food into our consciousness, into the fact that food is not just the food, it's a ceremony behind it. It's everyone kind of seeing the process of a change or learning from people before them or teaching other people or inviting people kind of into their culture as well, which each one of you is doing in that way of just opening what you do and allowing other people to, to come in, to view it, to become a part of it. It's fascinating, a fascinating exhibition. We want to thank Karen, Justine, Michael, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. This is the last episode of the Victorian Albert with Honey and Co. Please go and see the exhibition. You can find more details online at the Victorian Albert Food Bigger Than the Plate. 
there's a tasty little promo for our listeners. You just uh, type Food40. Give you a 40% discount and you can come and enjoy it for yourself. It's really worth it. Thank you so much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.